The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus left Judea and departed for Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. And so he came to a Samaritan town called Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into town to buy food. The woman of Samaria said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? Because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where we get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well. He drank from it as well as his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said, whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty. The water I give him will become in him a well of wellspring springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, that I may not have to come here and draw water. And Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and bring him here. She said, I have no husband. And he said, you're right in saying you have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. She said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. When either on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who's called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with the woman. But none of them said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? She left her bucket and went to town and told the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ?" And they left the town and they came to Jesus. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would now hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this, your holy word, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. What is Jesus 
doing here? I mean, he's in Samaria with a Samaritan who is pretty seriously messed up. What's Jesus doing here? You know, we, we got to remember about the Samaritans. The Jews thought of the Samaritans as worse than Gentiles because they were half-breed cousins in their minds who had been so twisted into paganism. What happened with Samaria was the northern kingdom, when all those different empires were coming through, when the Assyrians came through and they sacked Syria, uh, Samaria, the king at the time, a king named Tiglath-Pileser III, the king of Assyria, well, he had a brilliant strategy as a pagan. How do you make sure that no one will rise up you make sure you mix all the cultures together, all the religions, all the cultures of all the nations together in Samaria. And and as a result, lions started killing people. So he said, well, I guess the God of the land is upset. So we better put a priest back there. So they grabbed someone from Israel to be a priest. We'll have priestly practice, but then all the other pagan religions and cultures would be around it. So it became a pseudo-Judaism, a pseudo-Israeli religion a pseudo-Jewish faith. And the Jews had nothing to do with them. Literally, it says Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It means they have literally no use for Samaritans. They don't do anything together. You know, this idea of a king who could so corrupt the worship life and the culture of a nation. We actually named our dog after him. Tiglath-Pileser III is the name of our dog. He's an 11-year-old golden doodle. We call him affectionately Tiggy. We like to name our dogs after the bad guys in the Bible, right? You name your children after good people in the Bible. You name your dogs after the bad people. I mean, it's better than a friend of mine who named his dog Bishop. I mean, that's just mean. I mean, so, Tiggy. But what's Jesus therefore doing here in Samaria? Well, Jesus, we'll find as we unpack this here in John 4, if you're there with me in your Bibles, Jesus is doing in Samaria what he's always doing. He's coming for this woman. He comes for her. He's got an intention. He's got a plan. He comes for her. But he comes for her and then he confronts her. It's it's a pretty awkward moment there where they start talking about how many husbands have been involved. He's confronting her. He's doing something that doesn't seem so much like Jesus and yet so necessary and so gospel. Because he comes for this woman and he confronts her for the purpose of not condemning her, but actually courting her. He's courting her for nothing less than marriage. See, Jesus comes for this woman. We're told in verse four that he had to pass through Samaria. And you gotta stop and say, he had to? He had to pass through Samaria. Actually, he didn't have to. There's another route. It's a little longer but it would go around Samaria and Jews would take it all the time to avoid defilement. You don't have to go through Samaria. And in fact, Jesus has already done that in chapter two of John's gospel. He's taken the other route. So had to go through Samaria can't mean it was the only way. Had to has to mean something else. Had to has to mean there was some divine reason why he had to go through Samaria. He had a divine appointment. It was at noon at Jacob's well with a woman. He goes and he waits for his divine appointment. Isn't it interesting that Jesus goes for her? He knows she's coming. He knows everything about her. She doesn't know he's even there. 
It's important we recognize this because so often we think about our relationship with God. We often think that we are the ones seeking him. Let's go out and seek God and we'll find God. But the reality of what we see again and again in scripture and in our own lives is that God is the one who's seeking us. God is the one who comes for us. Jesus comes to Samaria for her. I don't know if any of you remember the seeker-sensitive movement of the late 80s and 90s. I got saved in the early 90s in a seeker-sensitive church. These are churches that were very much oriented around people outside the church. Let's make the church as non-churchy as possible, right? And I loved it because there was drama ministry every Sunday and special music. We'd take secular songs from the radio and kind of like change one or two words and then sing them in worship. And we thought we were being so culturally fun. I'm not mocking it. It got me in the door. But here's the problem. I have no problem with that idea of cultural engagement and finding proactive new ways to reach the culture. But the name was wrong. The name was problematic because it was imagining that the seeker was the person seeking God. No, God is always the one who is seeking us. And it's important we remember this, that Jesus went for her because it helps us fight against the heresies that can so easily work their way into our vocabulary. And the way we see God, you know, that idea that God wants us to meet him halfway, really? Or that God helps those who help themselves. That's not how it works. God is actively seeking us. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. John 15, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus came to Samaria for her. He came for her. But he came to confront her. And this is where it gets a little difficult. So verse six, we're told that it's the sixth hour, which means it's noon. So he's at the well and she comes to draw water at noon. Immediately, we know there's something wrong in this story because you do not come and draw water at noon. It's the hottest part of the day. Women in Israel would, and Samaria, would draw water in the morning and in the evening because it's cool. Why would this woman possibly come at noon to draw water unless she was so desperate to not bump into any other women at the well? She's coming because she doesn't want to see anyone else. She's coming because she has a story. She's got a history She's got a background and she's full of shame and she doesn't want it to be exposed yet again and again and again. So she comes in the blistering heat to draw water. You hear the pain in her voice, in fact, when Jesus begins talking with her about this living water she's gonna give and what, what he's gonna give her. And what does she say? She says, sir, give me this water that I may not be thirsty and that I may not have to come here and draw water. You hear the pain and the hear, have to come here. Every day I'm having to face this down right here. Jesus doesn't let her off the hook. This is what's so strange. He presses further. He's going to make it even more awkward. He takes this reference to here and says, let's use that again. He says, how about you call your husband and bring him here? Well, she gives a very careful answer in verse 17. I have no husband. She's giving Jesus every opportunity not to make this any further awkward, right? But Jesus keeps pressing in. He came here for a reason. He's got a divine appointment for a reason. And so he pushes further. He says, you know, you're right that you have no husband. 
because you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you said is true. It's not a compliment, by the way. He's saying you are a master of deception. But hear it, that Jesus is not condemning her. He is confronting her. He's not condemning her. As John 3, 17 said just in the previous chapter, the son of man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. He comes not to condemn, but to confront, to confront the reality of what's going on in her life. And it is a mercy. As hard as it is to confront the reality of what's going on in our lives, it is a mercy from God when it is revealed to us. What God is saying to her in this moment is, you are truly thirsty. You are so thirsty. And nothing that you are trying to satisfy your thirst with is working, is it? This woman, like all of us, has a God-sized hole in her life. And she's pushing everything she can find in, but it will not fill it. You hear the colic from today? Our colic from today that's from St. Augustine. His words. Heavenly Father, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. That we will never be satisfied with the things that we're filling our lives with that aren't God. Yes, for this woman, it's a series of relationships. For others of us, it may be money, it may be power, it may be fame, it may be beauty. Pick whatever one is yours. God comes into our lives and confronts us and says, you are so very thirsty. And none of this stuff you're doing is gonna quench your thirst. Only I can give you what you really desire. The problem is these pseudo false loves out there in the world that our world is constantly pushing on us. Oh, go do this, do this, have more of this, and you'll find true satisfaction, you'll find true fulfillment. They lie to us again and again. And we so easily give in to the lies. I, I think of the American philosopher, Adam Sandler, in his <laughs> movie, The Wedding Singer. You know, Adam Sandler's character, giving up on love, you know, says to his friend who's just known for philandering, he just says, you know, I'm gonna be like you going forward. I'm gonna just, I'm gonna have a different girl every night. I'm gonna be free and happy. And Sammy, his philandering friend, sort of the mic drop moment in the movie says, I'm not happy. I'm miserable. All I want is someone to hold me and tell me it's gonna be okay. To put it a little more eloquently, G.K. Chesterton says, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Jesus is confronting this woman about just how thirsty she is. And so he's confronting you and I. That we so easily give in to these other siren songs of our culture. We can sing together on a Sunday morning, you're all I want, you're all I need. But the truth is we're praying that that could be true in our lives. So easily we get pulled to other false loves. And so he confronts us. He confronts us because he loves us. I remember a number of years ago, we had uh, a very famous bishop from the Church of England visiting us in my parish in Ottawa. I was a young priest and we had Bishop Michael Nazarelli. He was this big wig who'd been basically the runner up if there was such a thing for the Archbishop of Canterbury. He didn't get it. 
Oh, that he would have got it. He was conservative and faithful and probably would have saved us from a thousand sorrows. But there was Bishop Michael in our parish and I was so excited and we're getting all vested up to go and he's gonna preach and we walk through the doors to the area we're vesting and someone put up a poster on the wall and it was one of those things you can buy at the Christian bookstore, you know, and it's got this camel and he's got this weird, crazy hair and he's making this camel face and it's all strange. And the caption just says, God loves me just as I am. And Bishop Michael looked by and he goes, Paul, that is heresy. I know, I know. Because it's just half the truth, isn't it? Yes, God loves us as we are, but loves us too much to leave us as we are. He confronts us because he sees that we're thirsting and we're dying. And so he confronts us in love. You know, it's interesting how Bishop Tom Wright says that we don't know much about this woman in truth. And we need to be careful we don't condemn her. Jesus doesn't condemn her. He just confronts her. Wright says, we don't know whether she was equally sinned against as sinning. We don't know what emotional traumas in her background may have made it harder for her to form lasting emotional bonds. But she knew her life was a mess. And now she knew that Jesus knew. And that's why she says in verse 19, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. It's just like hands up surrender. Yes, I know. I'm absolutely broken. I'm absolutely dying of thirst. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus comes for this woman, this divine appointment. And yes, he does this hard thing of confronting her. It's the season of Lent. We are to be confronted by our brokenness. It is a mercy of God. But he does it not to condemn, but to court her. He's ultimately doing this to invite her into a new relationship, a relationship that is nothing less than marriage. It's interesting. In verse 21, Jesus makes this promise. He says, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He's saying to this very broken woman, you can have a relationship with the Father in heaven. Verse 23, he says, the time is coming and is now here when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. He's laying out a promise before this woman. There is a relationship with the Father that is right before you, but guess what? It's gonna have to be a relationship based on spirit and truth. It can't be this game of deception you've been playing your whole life. It's a new kind of life. It's a new creation. And the woman hears it and longs for it, as we all, every one of us, hearing that we could have that kind of true spirit and truth relationship with God. But what does she say? She says, I know Messiah's coming and when he comes, he will tell us all things. It, he's, she's basically saying, yeah, I, I hear it, but it's gonna take a miracle. It would take Messiah to show up to do that. It would take the Messiah who we've been waiting for 800 years to come to show up and actually make a sinner like me have that kind of relationship with God. And what does Jesus say in verse 26? He says, I who speak to you am he. I've come. I've come to Samaria for you. 
I've come and yes, I'm confronting you, but not to condemn, but to give you new life, to court you into a new relationship. Friends, here's what's interesting. Is this story that Jesus is playing out here is a retelling of probably the most famous courtship story in the first five books of the Bible, the the Torah, the Pentateuch. See, the Samaritans and the Jews disagreed on a lot of things. They disagreed on where to worship. The Samaritans said Mount Gerizim. The Jews said Jerusalem, Mount Zion. But they also disagreed on the Bible, right? The Jews read the whole of the Old Testament, the Torah, the prophets, the writings. The Samaritans only read the Torah. They only read the first five books. They had like a smaller Bible. So this woman would know the exact story that Jesus is replaying for her. The most famous courtship story, the most famous engagement story in all of the Torah. It's Genesis 24, and it takes place at a well where a servant of Abraham is going to find a bride for his master's son, Isaac. And when he goes to the well, he says, the woman who offers to give me a drink, she's gonna be the bride I'll choose. And so the woman comes, it's Rebecca. He asks for a drink. Jesus is replaying the entire story. And she gives him a drink and he puts rings on her ears and her fingers and takes her home as the bride for his master's son, Isaac. It's a beautiful story of engagement. And Jesus is replaying it here and she cannot but recognize that it's kind of a redone, weird version of this story all over again. Here's what makes it weird and here's what makes it good news. Rebecca was the perfect bride. This woman is so far from the perfect bride. Rebecca gives a drink right when asked for it. This woman wants to argue with him. Rebecca has a pure life before her. This woman has a past. Rebecca was the perfect bride choice and this woman is the last of bride choices. But what does the Messiah do? He says, I choose you to be my bride. And friends, this is the heart of the gospel. God comes to broken humanity and says, I want to marry you. It's the story of all of scripture. God again and again coming to Israel, faithless Israel, backwards Israel, Israel that turns its back on God and goes after other gods again and again. And God again and again says, I will be your husband and I will make you my spotless bride. Jesus goes to a cross, the Messiah not just to correct this woman and all of us who he calls to be his bride, but to make us pure and spotless, to bear everything that is shameful, everything that is wrong in himself so that we can stand as a pure and spotless bride. And do you see what this does for our relationship with God? That if God sees us as his bride, not just as a project to be fixed. Well, there's some broken people. Let me fix them up a bit. If he sees us as his bride, it means he delights over us. He delights over us. You know, it was interesting. I was watching with the girls our wedding video last year. We hadn't pulled it out for a long time. And so we watched the wedding video from Monica and I 23 years ago. And it's hilarious watching your wedding video with your kids because they kind of just make fun of the whole thing. But, but the, the best part of it though is as the video begins, the production begins and there's Paul up at the front waiting for his bride. And I look terrified. 
I mean, I just look absolutely terrified. And the kids are like, dad, you look like you're gonna be sick or run away or something. I mean, I was a professional stage actor. I was performing in front of gigantic audiences and I'm at a little tiny church getting married and I look like I'm gonna die, I'm so afraid. Until something happens. The door opens at the back of the church and Monica comes in and I see my bride. And you see my face shift from fear to total delight because I'm looking upon my bride. I look upon her the same way 23 years later. Friends, this is the way that Jesus looks upon you and me. We're not just projects to be fixed. We are to be his bride, delighting in us. Delighting in us. When Jesus looks on you, it's not just as a king looking on a subject. It's not just as a shepherd looking upon a sheep. It's not just a physician looking upon a sick person. It is a husband looking upon his bride. As Isaiah 62 says, the promise for us, the promise for this woman, the promise for you and me, no longer shall you be called forsaken or your land named desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land shall be called married. For as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God rejoices over you. What is Jesus doing here? with the Samaritan woman in Samaria who seriously messed up. What is he doing here this morning in our own Samaria of a kind with a bunch of Samaritans of a kind who are seriously messed up in the same kind of ways? What is Jesus doing here? He's doing what he always does. He's come for us. And yes, he comes to confront us about just how thirsty we are, how much we desperately need him. But he does it not to condemn, but to court us. Oh, would you come into this new relationship with me? You're not a project. You're my bride-to-be. You know, what's interesting with this woman is we wonder, well, did she take him up on his offer? You know, all the way through this, she always has a response. She's always got a rebuttal for Jesus. Every point in this, until the end, until he reveals himself to be the Messiah who can do this miraculous work, and suddenly she is silent. And the disciples return. But John gives us a wonderful hint that she has, in fact, received this gift. Two things. First, what does she do? She runs into town, and she starts telling everyone about Jesus. The woman who was hiding from the world in her shame is now running into the center of town and saying, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. The shame is gone because she is a bride. And she knows she's a bride. But not just that. I love how John does this. It's so subtle, but it's so beautiful. Remember when Jesus talked about the living water? Saying, you know, if you, if you drink this water... You're not going to have to come back to this well anymore. You don't have to come back anymore because you'll, you'll, you won't thirst again. You'll have a well of living water in you. So what happens after this proposal? John says in verse 29, 
that she left her bucket and went into town. Left her bucket? Why'd she leave her bucket? Because she doesn't need her bucket anymore. She has streams of living water now living in her. Oh, friends, Jesus is here with us today. He has come for you and he's come for me. Some of you he's come to for the first time. You are in this service today or watching online and it is the Lord literally in this moment reenacting this story in your life. He's come for you and he's confronting you about your thirst for him. And the invitation is for you and for all who would turn to him. Come and let him court you. Come and receive those springs of living water. Put down your bucket and live. But for you and I who already are in Christ, the story keeps happening again and again. We don't do this once. This story played out for me this week at least three or four times. Times that I got myself pulled into other false loves and the Lord came for me again and confronted me again and courted me again and said, remember who you are. You're not a bride to the world, you're a bride to me. He does it week after week with us again and again. What is Jesus doing here? He's drawing us to himself. He's come for us to confront us, that he'd court us again. That's the reason we have this table every week. Because every week we believe the siren songs of our culture. Every week we fail to really believe that he's all I want and all I need. And so he comes to us and draws us back in and confronts us and says again, let me court you. Because what is this meal but a foretaste of what? A wedding banquet. That when we open our eyes in the new heavens and the earth, there is a wedding feast laid. We taste it every Sunday. We rehearse it every Sunday because this is what it means that Jesus has come not to make you a project to be fixed, but a bride to be wed. Oh, that we would put down our buckets today and receive this gift of living water. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.